welcome to Afroability, a conversation about African business and technology. Today, we're going to talk about Iroko TV, the Nollywood media streaming platform. We'll give some background on the Nigerian cinema industry. We'll talk about Iroko's founding and early history. We'll also talk about its different businesses over time, and then we'll end with our views on its future outlook. This episode was recorded on November 15, 2020. BMK, how goes it? I'm good. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good new name. Uh, I'm fine. Life is good. Can't complain. How are you? I'm great. I'm running out of nicknames to give you. I think at some point I may need to revert to just Banky. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. I uh, came back from a long walk. I'm ready. Let's talk about Iroko. Yes, I am hyped. Before we jump into Iroko, very quick minor announcement. We launched our insider mailing list publicly. So if you go to affability.com, you can sign up. We previously had the mailing list for some of our insiders. So thank you to all those great people. But now anyone can join in and uh, get fun emails from us once in a while. Yeah. So go and every sign now up. And, every now and then. There will be few, but they will all be useful. Yes. Affability.com. Then hit subscribe. There'll be a list of podcasts. And then there will also be a block for you to put your email address. Okay. Today we're talking about Iroko. Boom. Fun story, right? Yeah, it's it's fun. I think there's there's a couple of pieces as to why we're talking about this. First of all, we do like to talk about businesses that operate in Africa and businesses that are Nigerian. Um, especially the movie industry is very unique. Right. Um, it's not something that immediately comes to mind if you think about where fortunes are made for most people. Also, we've not really spoken about the entertainment industry much. The entertainment industry, specifically Nollywood, is super important in terms of time spent dollars and revenue to the Nigerian economy and to the African economy in general. So this would be a good chance to, to discuss that piece because it's only partially related with tech. This is one of the few times when entertainment overlaps with tech. So the the other thing is, uh, if I think of movies and of course where Roku TV plays in, I've heard um, this term, which I discovered looking at really the Nigerianization of Africa. Yes. And that, I, and that, and that that's Nollywood's fault in that, like the movies. So Kids in Zambia speaking with Nigerian accents nice. um, and things like that. It's it's in, it's very interesting. It's rich for me to say, um, as a Nigerian, it's like worrying that the whole continent has come to snap its fingers the Nigerian way. Yeah. This episode helps unpack some of that. There is the uh, Nigerian country within the African continent. There's the Nigerian country within the African diaspora globally, and they're like multiple levels of information. Um, okay, so Robert the other T- half of that is is music. We should definitely have that on a future episode. I think the music and the movies are definitely part of that Nigerianization or yeah. of of Africa into, of Nigeria into the rest of Africa. Yeah, I wonder how we could do that with overlap of music and tech. The closest we got to was MTN had the um, music tune thing app, but yeah, oh, I'm there's sure. A, the, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let's boom play the spinlet. There's a lot of dead bodies there to talk <sighs> about. Um, and boom there's Iroh King as well. But boom play isn't dead yet? No, no, not boom play. I'm saying there's other dead bodies. Okay, okay. Like spinlet okay. is dead. <laughs> I don't know uh, what it is. Uh, Uri, there's a lot of dead bodies in the music industry. Okay. Uh, another great thing by Roku TV, it's sort of uh, a tech pioneer in that it was one of the first major tech companies in the entertainment space. Um, it also had a lot of interesting business model innovation. It invested in a bunch of other companies, and it has a very interesting uh, founder, Jason Njoku, who's very outspoken, one of the longest uh, tenured tech founders, um, and one of the longest surviving founders in tech scene. So we have uh, multiple layers to talk about. Entertainment industry, tech company in the entertainment industry, and then a tech founder who was very influential early on. So boom, we're going to start with market context. In Nigeria, similar to Egypt or South Africa, many other African co- countries, it followed the same. There were colonial powers. We watched their movies. There were silent movies, cinemas, foreign operated cinemas. In Nigeria, however, in the 70s, there was indigenization. They chased away a lot of the foreign cinema operators. It was uh, nice. Yakubu Gowon. 
uh, former military ruler in Nigeria. And then mm-hmm. we started creating our own theaters, but there wasn't a lot of investment. Wait, hold on. Why, why did they chase them away? Why didn't they just move after like independence? So in, in 1970, um, we went through, uh, through, the, through the post-independence from the right. 60s to 70s, we had military rulers and there was this push for all our assets, because see, post-colonization, uh, we're trying to control our assets. Um, it's right. like all of these things are still owned by foreign entities. So right. like they were mandated to sell to local people. So they had to sell their assets and move. So in the music industry, so we had Sony and these big brands and Decca Records and stuff that are big in the US at the time, in the 60s and 70s, so, um, putting out music for Beatles or Rolling Stones. We had those brands in Nigeria, those labels in Nigeria as well. But because of a lot of those policies in the 60s and 70s, they had to divest and leave, which is why you ever wonder why we don't have that. Because on a very simplistic level, if the artists are Nigerian, it doesn't really make any difference, the ownership structure. But then on a more nuanced level, the ownership structure and the incentives means the money flows may go to the labels or the owners, not the actual artists and the movie producers. Okay, okay. Yeah. Interesting. It's a super political thing. But yeah. we continue making movies because we wanted to tell our own stories. Our stories are unique. Mm. Um, and we just made a lot of movies. So. The many stats, depending on where you look, I saw in 2004, we had four or five movies released each day. Yikes. Um, and probably took over, I saw another stat from 2006 that Bollywood provi- pro- produced a thousand feature length movies in 2006. Nigeria pro- produced 870 and the US was 480 in 2006. So mm. we're already doing large scale volume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, South Africa, Egypt and Senegal, also very similar. I didn't, did you ever watch The Gods Must Be Crazy? No. That was the first big, uh, I'm sure somebody's listened to it. If you've listened to The Gods Must Be Crazy and you think Olumide is crazy for not having watched that, please <laughs> ping us or drop us a message. Yeah. It was a, one of the, was released in 1980 in South Africa, one of the very first really popular movies. Um, is it any good out. or is it crap? It's good. It's classic. I, okay. I loved it as okay. a kid. I watched it multiple times. It's probably okay. too slapstick now if I think Ugh. about how old I am now. But yeah. this was how it worked, right? So in, in that period of time, if you wanted to watch a movie, let's call it the 2000s. So I was in high school. You want to get watch a movie. You bought or rented a VHS first, later VCD. Mm. DVD was much later. You went home to play. So you had a VCD and you had the bouncing image and, and the thing. I remember. And the VCD player. There were like video rental clubs or something. I loved video it. Clubs. Video, video clubs. clubs. Yeah. Yeah. When, when yeah, as a kid for me, it was Sim- like, I loved it. I had such a nice feeling just going in. Like all these movies. Yeah, it was so many movies. It was yeah. similar similar to what Blockbuster in the US. Um, a couple of things. All of this viewing was very... Uh, cash-based. So we also had cable TV and pay TV, mm-hmm. but a lot of these things were cash-based, which mm-hmm. if you think about where the context of Roku was coming in is having to try to sell something online where the digital payment infrastructure was not nearly as developed. But yes. that's how you that's how you watched you watched the movie. You went, you bought a CD, DVD, or rented it, and you watched it. Yeah. And then you paid a fee, and then you returned it after X number of days. Yeah. yeah. As a, and if you're late, you pay more. As a business, though, the movie industry worked differently. In the US and Western societies, the film's commercial lifespan stands with starts off with cinema release and then mm-hmm. video release, mm-hmm. then broadcast on pay TV, then finally on, on, on TV. And then producers, marketers would promote it to maximize profitability across each phase, basically. So it starts from paying a super high price to being ad-supported at the end. Right, right. And, and then if you're Disney, you also have merchandise and licensing yeah. at the tail end, but that's only the minority of movies. Yeah. In Nigeria, it's very different, right? This, this three to four... Budget, low budget movies are released every day are sold to like single massive um, distributors in Alabama market, which is think of it as a uh, public market um, technology epicenter for movie distribution. 
and they quickly replicate that into 200,000 video cassettes and they sell it. So you get a flat price for your content as a content creator. Um, and then, and then they it. distribute it and distributors. The, the the contracts differ. They okay. they can keep the rights, they may not keep the rights. There's right. a lot of piracy. Right. They might share revenue with you, but how do you verify that? Neither here. They go back and they give you a car. Which is the same way music worked, by the way. Yeah, the macro point is you normally the revenue is front loaded. You may yeah. get some longer term, but it's much more likely to be one and done initially. But you see, from the point of the creator of the content though, the revenue mm-hmm. the timing of the revenue and the cost are very close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you yep. think about it, so you, yep. you spend the money, assuming you invest, or you maybe even get the money from the distributor at first, but it's very close. Versus in 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 Western societies, you spend thirty million dollars on a movie, you know, you finance that, and know that you will make it over the next three to four years. Right, um, right, and it also it makes sense from a business perspective because in a place where there's low trusts and low levels of contract enforcement, you want a short cycle to get your money back. Otherwise, you may not be able to enforce a contract if you're going to get a payout in year four, year five. Yeah, you have to take the person to court. <laughs> And piracy was a big problem also. So you so you was almost like strike where the heron is hot. So you want mm-hmm. to have basically distributors were indistinguishable from pirates, right? That's right. that's what you that what some people said is that you their play was basically distributed quicker than anybody else. <laughs> and for the market with the content cheaper than anybody else, and then they can make it. Yeah. So in fact, Bakali, growing up, did we could you differentiate a pirated VCD versus not like I would buy movies vcds on the road 250 i think 150 250 but it wasn't possible to actually tell because they all it's, it's not like the original had nicer quality it, was, casing. it wasn't it was possible similar. for you you were rich all the day no 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 i'm kidding i, I think i think you can tell you but can? it's not easy to tell oh yeah you okay. can tell i know you think the 159 vcds were cheap but they were there was worse there was worse okay. out there um, okay and, and for, for, for the audience there's a technical difference between a dvd and a vcd so for american listeners DVD is higher quality. The disc is like four and a half gigs. VCD is basically a regular CD that you can use for music. It's like 700 megabytes. It's yeah. downsampled, so it's like 480p. It's a little bit grainy. The sound quality is a little bit worse. sometimes. Yeah, but, but for, for, exactly. So but for the most part, it's similar enough, but just think about it as cheaper, lower quality, but it works, and that's what most people use. This, this whole period is, there's all this piracy, um, and as Nigerians started to immigrate and move abroad, they wanted to consume the same content. So mm-hmm. there are stories of like people going to African communities to watch the content, like Africans mm-hmm. going to the hair salon to watch the content and things like that. Yeah. And the piracy funded all of that because a film movie becomes popular. All I need to do, there's nobody to pay for rights. I just, you know, reproduce a bunch of copies. Mm-hmm. I saw an estimate that for every legitimate copy sold, nine are pirated for oh, Nigerian wow. movies. Oh, wow. That was pretty bad, right? Oh, and wow. there were limited channels to be legitimate about it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to call the company and ask for their rights. <laughs> right? So it wasn't, the legal framework wasn't that solid. Um, piracy wow. was a problem. Enforce, legal enforcement was a problem. And then demand, however, as Nigerians moved abroad more and more, which has been happening, and technology became better and better to watch movies and all of those things online mm-hmm. on YouTube, mm-hmm. people wanted the same content. Right. And this time frame is like, Mid nineties to uh, late two thousands, right? Yeah, yeah, mid nineties, late two thousands, exactly. Right, right. Uh, uh, and the other thing, the other piece that also happened that is is interesting, at least to me, is being a teenager. Is I think this also this period, let's call it two thousand five ish forward, mm-hmm. marked a time where you started to appreciate more Nigerian content as a Nigerian in Nigeria. Mm. 
um, I, I, I can just think of music and, and, and growing out as a teenager or, or as a young adult. And it used to be only, there was a time it used to be only Western foreign music and like angry rap and, and 50 Cent. Now, and not even fast forwarding to now, fast forwarding to a few years later, um, with WizKids' first album and Nice and a lot of these these musicians where mm-hmm. the order just kind of flipped and it became much more mainstream. Now, if you think about today, now it would be super absurd to go to like a Nigerian party or a Nigerian club in Nigeria, in Lagos, or even anywhere and not hear like 80% Nigerian music. Right. I think that was almost never the case. Right. Do you think the same thing has happened with movies or do you think it's still uh, Western-based? I think it's become more mainstream to like it. I, I definitely mm-hmm. think we've always loved our movies. Um, we've always loved our music. I think um, music like movies has become much more like um, much more mainstream because it's become right. much more accessible and it's become much right. more normal. Yeah, I think my view, which is a little bit biased and skewed because I live here, is I think for older people, it's like, it's like an age divide. At a certain yeah. age, a lot of Nigerians, whether they live in Nigeria, actually a lot of Africans, whether they live in Africa or they live abroad, their diaspora, I think they really yeah. like Nollywood movies. But I think younger people, it's less likely versus music is just completely universal. I'm not yeah. sure why that's the case or if my observation is accurate, but that's the sense I get. I think people have strong feelings about this. I remember being in university and there was this club that only played Nigerian music. Like that was their thing. And it was a big deal that they only played Nigerian music. Like that would be an absurd concept today, right? That's what I mean about like, it was it was, it was was new and edgy to only play okay. Nigerian music. And imagine going to a right. club like, oh, we only play American music in America. I'd be like, duh. Right. Um, right. But yeah. Anyways, back to Iroko. So that's the context yeah. that like, Iroko, Iroko is coming to. Yeah. The movies were not really profitable. Tons of movies a week, making more like high volume, not making any money. It was... I saw estimates it was 1.6 billion and this was 2012, maybe 1.6 billion at Bollywood, 10 billion in Hollywood, 600 million for the economy, basically the entire ecosystem with most of it from, from diaspora. Yeah. And this context Roku TV was coming into, this Nollywood context, just to tell you how important Nollywood is, apparently Nollywood is the second or third largest employer in Nigeria yeah. after agriculture. I was a little bit surprised to learn that. I don't know movie sets needed that many people. Anyway, fine. It hires approximately more than... 1 million people and is 1 to 4% of Nigeria's GDP. So a big deal and still in the offline TV phase. So yeah. the story and, now and is- This is, this is sorry, sorry. This mm. is also one of the things to think about, like people wanted to consume this content. And also in 2000s, multi-choice, big pay TV yes. providers started running the channels dedicated to like Africa Magic and Africa Magic yeah. Urban, Africa Magic Hausa for like local domestic movies. But it was a hit. It was just a, it was a- unmitigated, like just, no, unmitigated on the right word. It was a massive, massive hit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that whole series. But again, all of those payments were cash-based. You walked into a store, you paid every month for your DSTV. And yes. if I think about now, DSTV was a big cable provider. If I think about it now, the idea of a subscription, that you had to physically walk in to pay every month. It's sticky yeah. AF. It's yes. wild. Yes. It's insane. Yeah. Like that would be like a bad business, which is why like I think kudos to like, Kudos to multi-choice, Mnet, Kus, and Naspers for making it happen. Having, for making it happen, because you would say like a subscription service that every month you have to decide, you have to take get your salary and then decide again every month if this. And is it wasn't cheap. It. And it wasn't cheap. It uh, wasn't cheap at all. I remember eventually the price started to come down, but I remember when we first of all had like Mnet, all these channels. It was quite expensive, and yeah. even then there was also a time, like you said, where they had almost all European, American shows. Then yeah. over time, it just became more and more, because Mnet is South African, so eventually yeah. you expect it to become more and more African. But at a, at a time, they had like more dedicated African channels, um, which yeah, then that- led to what we think of as Iroko TV. One thing to emphasize for the audience is, not only was it cash-based, it was completely offline. There's no internet 
in this story yet. There's no There's streaming. no internet to pay for this pay TV. None of that. You basically like have a cable and you pay for it, which is again, growing up in Nigeria, it's normal. And I moved here and it's like, wait, people will say like, that's a terrible business because every month people have to, yeah, people have to judge your network. Like people can be like, I don't even watch this thing. No. Yeah. Versus all like subscription services in the US just live and die on breakage and auto renew, yeah. basically. That right. you forget. <laughs> right. Okay. So that leads us into um, the Roku model. A few things to note. So way, way before 2010, internet penetration was super low. Data costs were expensive. Speed was slow. And this is doubly the fact for video streaming, which obviously requires a lot more bandwidth. Um, you can listen to our afrobleed.com slash internet episode for more information about internet access in Africa. So all the viewing was offline. There was a lot of piracy. And the way piracy worked abroad, going abroad for a second, was people could upload videos to YouTube. YouTube had like a 10-minute limit. So they would slice and dice different movies. I remember movies, that. Obviously. I remember yes. watching it and it was like, Next yeah. video after. Part one, yeah. part two, part three. So yeah. if you think about it, a movie has like, let's say one hour, 30 minutes of content and it's 10 minutes each. That's going to be a lot of parts. So this is this set the stage for what became Iroko TV. So let's take a diversion and talk about Jason and Joku for a second. We'll come back to the Iroko TV studio. So story. So Jason Joku was born December 11th, 1980. And he grew up in Southeast London in the mid 80s, right? The way he describes his background, uh, he uses the, the uh, clause, solidly working class, which I always smile when I see that. He didn't visit Nigeria as frequently as some of his peers growing up. So in a lot of his interviews, Jason says his relationship and uh, connection to Nigeria was low to medium compared to some of his peers who went back very frequently. Mm -hmm. He was mm -hmm. the first person in his family to go to university. And he's, yes, which is surprising to learn. Yeah, I know. And he studied chemistry from 2002, 2005 at the University of Manchester. He worked for a long time during college to pay his bills, and he started some entrepreneurial ventures even while he was at school, one of them in his senior year of college. Funny enough, even though he studied chemistry, clearly he didn't give a shit about chemistry, because immediately after he graduated, he uh, started a bunch of business ventures. So, Bankley, I don't know if you've seen this information. <laughs> Do Tell you know me. how many businesses Jason uh, didn't succeed at before he broke up? Tell me. And you just guess at any number. I don't know, three? Uh, ten. <laughs> so, okay, here's but the first list. first, he didn't succeed. Okay. I know you keep going. So, uh, 2005, 2010, Jason tried a, a t-shirt printing business, a graphic design studio business, a party promotion business, a blog for professional services, a I magazine. It's, the so blog. there's a, a long list. And by the way, I say this as like, I'm actually being, cause the way Jason describes this is it's always good to embrace failure and move and learn from what hasn't worked. So I'm not saying this to say, oh, these are bad things. I'm saying to say he persevered and kept on pushing. Um, in 2010, he ended up moving back in with his mom and he noticed there was a potential opportunity in the Nollywood space. And the opportunity he noticed was on one hand, there is massive demand for Nollywood content from African people. On the other hand, the supply is fragmented and there's a yeah. lack of a, a centralized monetization model. So that was the opportunity he, he observed in 2010, which is the beginning of the story. So one thing I also remember is um, Nollywood love um, and all these movies and all the word. I'm not even proud to say that like I I was on YouTube trying to download stuff off YouTube because YouTube downloaders <laughs> then put on, on VCDs for myself, which is like why? What did or you my, say? What, what or did my you hard drive to then distribute with my fellow engineering classmates. Like, you, look at this life, movie I found online. Life, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I remember I remember that. I remember I remember that whole period. Yeah, I, I will say uh, this is our sixteenth uh, episode. 
Jason is actually one of the most quotable um, uh, leaders we've seen so far. So here, here's a, another quote, which always makes me laugh. He said, before Roku TV, I was failing miserably at trying to start media businesses, which I thought was a good way, good way to frame it. Uh, so now this sets the scene. This is 2010. He's noticed this opportunity and he's thinking about what, what to do. So a little bit about Jason's personality. One of the early tech pioneers, quite direct, open and blunt. I'm actually going to add a, a link to his TED talk, which is great. It's called Failing All the Way to Success, where he talks about for entrepreneurs, you need to be gritty, you need to push. It's really hard. It's long. It's not glamorous. It's actually, it's sort of what has become more common in Silicon Valley, like people talking more openly about failure. But this is these are things he was saying like seven years and eight years ago in Nigeria, which was less common back then. Okay, so Iroko TV. I'm going to talk about their different business models over time because actually they've changed the way they've thought about their businesses. So the first type of business they did, I'll call this a linear retail business. And their revenue source was basically like hard, hardware sales. Okay, so linear re retail business. What does that mean? They bought VCDs from Nigeria, Nollywood VCDs, brought them over to England and sold them. I was like, wait, what? This Iroko did this? This sounds nothing like their business today. So yes, they did this. Hustle. They would buy a bunch of movies. Then let's say someone was traveling over. The person would put them on their suitcase. Jason would get them and just sell them. So that was the first business they did for a short amount of time. The second business they did, I'm going to call this one desktop video distributor. Most of their money was from ads. So they distributed videos on third-party platforms, most notably YouTube, but also Daily Motion, Vimeo, and others. So they made a lot of money from that, by the way. They made a yeah. lot of money. The, the, the other thing to also realize is it's easy to think that as you as we walk through the Roku story, mm. it's easy to think, oh man, they don't want to try to do it. There were a lot of people trying to do the same thing. They were not the only ones. There were a lot of people selling Nigerian content, licensed or unlicensed, pirated or unpirated. To these, like, to YouTube and platforms like that at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think this is a great revision because, first of all, you buy and sell physical VCDs, hard to scale, right? You're waiting for people to travel, travel costs. This now is you buy licenses from Nigerian um, publishers and owners, content mm -hmm. owners. Mm -hmm. You put them on YouTube and then you get ad dollars for, for, from YouTube and then you rinse and repeat. So to give some more details about this business model, basically in interviews with. Um, with Jason, he said, okay, so at the time, they paid about 100 to $200 for the licenses okay. for a year. So I know it, it sounds a little bit low, but we have to understand this is 2010, 2011. The value of the content for those producers was super low because they were unaware of any other monetization. Like Dan Coley said, they got, they, they got used to getting a lot of upfront revenue. And for them, the downstream value of the contents yeah. was super low. So Doing they went to the negotiated. Revenue. He did, exactly. I saw an interview where he said he, he showed up a contract and gave them cash. Not a check, yes. always cash. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it's like yeah. extra money. I know. I know. And it's also like, the way I tried to picture it is just like crazy. So here's Jason. This American guy, um, this British. this British guy, he goes to, to to Nigeria, thick British accent, and he's negotiating buying thousands of licenses from local people. And I guess they were just thinking, oh yeah, <laughs> hello foreigner, just give us your money and get the fuck yeah. out. So I, I I find it fascinating. And his co-founders, yeah, money definitely helped. And his co-founder Bastian, which we'll talk about in a second, Bastian was a, a German friend, met him at college. So I could just imagine like a Caucasian German guy. A Nigerian guy with thick British accent going to the market and buying licenses. It's, it's funny to imagine, but I guess that's the story of startups. You have to start on the grind and keep pushing. Okay. 
Let's take a quick diversion to talk about some of the initial fundraising. So we spoke about Bastion. They met in college, like I said. Um, throughout 2010 to 2015, Jason basically describes Bastion as his best friend. Bastion was a co-founder, but also a seed investor. Because basically, he provided almost all the money that they used for their initial growth. The estimates are anywhere from $100,000 to $150,000 for a 50% stake in, in Iroko. And the funny thing about the funding stories, Bankley, do you see that? A lot of it was just like... ATM drips. So 300 pounds, ATM, here's the cash, 500 pounds, 1,000 from the ATM. So continuously over a year, just ATM drainage. So I, I thought it was a pretty, I don't think I found that before in a, in a founding story. So I think, I cool. think, uh, I think uh, it's exactly what happens with VCs, except they, they make you write an email first and give you a check. So same difference. Although, a lot of VCs, people see like company raised $20 million. They think they just deposit the money. If you're lucky, they do. And if you're important, they do. But usually they're like, what do you want to spend? Give us a requisition. I mean, they're basically like a stingy, um, a stingy relative giving you cash, telling you to bring what you want to spend on first. Yeah. So another funny thing I learned is Bastion convinced some of his former colleagues and managers to co-invest with him as angels. So a bunch of people put about $80,000 for a 10% stake, which basically valued um, Iroko at $800,000 in 2011. So as you can see, now they're getting some momentum. The business just started eight months ago. It's already valued at almost a million dollars. So high growth yeah. based on the market opportunity. A funny side story is since Bastion got some of his co- uh, co-workers and managers to invest, Jason also asked some of his Nigerian friends. It was like, hey, I'm doing this Nigerian Nollywood thing. He said he basically got zero takers. Um, that ended up being a missed opportunity because a few years later, those early investors uh, did some secondary sales for between 30 and 50 extra cash. So um, sometimes you win some, you lose some. Another interesting thing about Bastion is he was an oil derivatives trader <laughs> at BP. So yeah. his career had nothing nothing in common with the Iroko, but he was dedicated. He flew out to live in Nigeria. That's what you think. Like, there's nothing in common, but I guess we'll never know. Yeah. We should have him yeah. on the podcast. Yes, well. we, we should. We should. For future episode, Bastion um, and or Jason together. So he, he moved to, to Iroko. He became the CFO, COO, and then they started grinding for, from there. Like many entrepreneurs we talk about, seeing an opportunity, going against what was even common sense. One thing that I that I saw him do, like this is a content businesses are tough businesses, yes. very capital intensive. To reduce their dependence on YouTube, they launched their own platform. So they became a desktop video streaming platform. This is their third business model. And in this business model, to reduce their dependence, it was not so much, was also, in one hand, it was proactive, in the other hand, it was reactive because what happened is people started up trying to upload the content themselves for pennies, believing that like, Ruko was shafting them. And depending on who you ask, Ruko was shafting them. But like, Ruko <laughs> said they're not shafting them. But obviously, there's one side of the story. Yes. Um, so they tried to do that. So there was so much piracy online and people trying to do ads. And uh, and if you work in content moderation today, you know that like 10 years ago, the tech was not even nowhere near what it is now. So you can imagine how much difficult where they've paid for the license and it's still, you know, they're finding pirated copies that are driving more views. Right, right. So they decided to then go go to their own platform. Yes. So they created their own platform, IrokoTV.com. And this platform was partially based on the money. It was paid for based on the money they raised from Tiger Global. So Tiger Global was basically their first institutional investor. investor, And they invested $3 million at a 12 million post-money valuation at the end of 2011. So you can see this is crazy growth. This is one and a half years after launch. The company's already valued at $12 million. And they focused on building their own platform. And within three years, so... 2013, 50% of the revenue was from IrokoTV.com and only 15% from YouTube ads. So quite successful in terms of revenue after only a year and a half. 
in, in a lot of interviews with Jason, he says he regrets only getting one to three year licenses. Because as, as all this was happening, so we said before he paid um, $100 per license. After a while, he started to pay $300, $500, $2,000, $3,000 because of competition and because a lot of the publishers were going direct to YouTube. And he said at the peak, he was still only getting three-year licenses. So he said if there's one thing he would have changed, he would have just gotten like perpetual lifetime licenses instead of the ones that would renew. Um, so where, where are we in, in this story? They went from physical sales, basically a linear retail business, to a desktop video distributor reliant on ads revenue. And now they're basically a desktop streaming platform still reliant on ads. But the next thing they did was they also started to charge basically a freemium model. So now they had ads and subscription revenue. And most of the subscription revenue was coming from overseas diaspora, as, as you would yeah. expect with these kinds of businesses. So I guess it's an interesting play where show ads to the people who can't pay as much um, and then have some people pay. And what they did was they actually delineated the content. So they had Iroko TV Plus, which was only available for the premium subscribers. So if you were gonna see ads, you couldn't get that um, just because of the higher cost of contents. So around this time, they started to play around with a bunch of other businesses. And Bankly is going to talk about some of the other things they did, such as a studio, a music thing, and uh, and a capital, uh, a startup accelerator. Yeah. So so the same same right. They they tried different things. They started they started Spark Capital. Um, mm -hmm. Or they started with one million dollars. I'm not sure if they raised that from other limited partners, but they had a one million dollar fund. They invested. Instead of company builders, but they're really like VCs or incubators. They invest in companies. Right. Uh, same model as if you have an idea, come to us, we invest, or we have an idea, we hire a CEO and give him equity based on performance. Right. They have the a one very million ended portfolio. up becoming 2.5 million over time, right? They raise more eventually. Yeah, yeah. Right. They have a very uh, super interesting portfolio, at least uh, successful portfolio. Paystack is one of the portfolio companies which sold. I know, I saw that. For, I didn't know for, that. For $200 million to, to Stripe. Drinks.ng, hotels.ng, to let.com.ng. At least these are Oga Venue. These are popular tech companies in the Nigerian ecosystem are funded by Spark Capital, which is very good. They've also had some doozies, but that's what VC yeah. is. Yeah, I did not know um, the Pace Act thing. That is awesome. And I'd never heard of Oga Venue until I started prepping for this podcast. It is a smart, smart idea. I used it um, on Thursday. It, it, it makes sense based on the way Nigeria is set up. One of the best business ideas are some those that you use once and be like, this should have existed yeah. a long time yeah. ago. This, this makes a ton of sense. Uh, here's the manifesto they announced when they launched Spark Capital from Jason's site. By the way, Jason's site is awesome. Um, you guys should go and subscribe. Okay, so the manifesto says, we're not a fund <clears throat> and we're not an incubator. You know when, when people say we're not something, they're probably that. So anyway, <clears throat> Jason said, I quote, we're not a fund, Smart. we're not an incubator. We're a company that builds companies. We focus on Lagos, Nigeria as the gateway to Africa. We focus on well-defined and scalable revenue models. We're a collection of internet people. We are Spark. So yeah, basically a fund slash incubator. I think that so far so good. And I think this was something that like Bastian ran on ran separately. So so how and Bastian running, they had like separate parts of the business and Jason focused on Roku TV, he focused more on Spark and being the CFO of the entire company. Yeah. The more interesting one though is is Rock Studio, where it started from as Olympia talked about the licenses and the prices of the licenses going up. And Mnet also starting to buy the same licenses for their um for their tv channels right so they they end up having this thing where license costs went up his wife who was in the industry mm -hmm. was like these license prices don't make any sense i will make the movies for you for whatever for cheaper than that yeah. and that was the start and it seemed super 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 successful because they said to make really good movies really good content um right and i looked at some of them they're actually really good 
And then they use that, sort of leverage the studio experience to build, um, to also end up with their own TV channels or multi-choice DSTV and Sky. And they had mm-hmm. Rock Studios, Rock or have Rock Studios, Rock 1 to 3, yeah. DSTV and a Rock on Sky. I thought that was like a yeah. super interesting story. Yeah. Of going, of of uh, integrating your supply chain. Yeah, yeah I guess it, it makes sense. It's like a business strategy question. Do you want to go backwards and do backward integration with your supply chain? Sometimes the answer is yes, if they have a lot of power control over you. Sometimes the answer is no, if you have more power yeah. control. But in this specific circumstance, it's clear the balance of power was shifting towards the content holders because the price kept on going up, which is a clear, it, it's clear that they're having more negotiating leverage. And also because they have unique insights about what kind of customers like what kind of content and actors and shows when they're pausing, when they're stopping, it does make some sense. I don't know if I would say it's universally a good idea. So sometimes it just ends up being a lot of money wasted. In this so case, I'm, it seems it was I'm, great. I'm curious curious about like even like even the multi choices and and the eminence of this world yeah not going backwards to create their own content right it's just not in their dna it's not something that like again hq would fund the mm. big company small company focus problem where right why right. would you not studio to save you know three grand right but that's existential but, but, volume by the way the companies. same thing with, with this jason said in a lot of interviews that a lot of people on the board did not want him to do this in fact he kept on saying they told him this is not the business we invested in so i think he did it as a headstrong, push-ahead type entrepreneur. So even with, within Iroko. But then in July, they sold to Canal Plus in France, which was excellent. They sold Iroko's shares in, 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 this, in this affiliate. Mm-hmm. And they, the multiples which were year? pretty 2019 massive. July, right? Yeah, 2019 July. Mm-hmm. The multiples were, were, were pretty massive. And the number, because they said they, took, they, they spent less than a million dollars and raised the rest of it in debt. So I thought I that know. was pretty good. That was pretty yeah. dope to have that kind of exit. Which, yeah. if you think about the fact that they made a lot of revenue from that because they had all these TV channels that they were paying for and they had the content. So when you then flip it flip it over, is now they have capital as an individual, but also as a company. Because individually and the company also held shares in this. And this exit gave them a lot more flexibility yes. in this as well. Yes. And I read that part of the rationale for the deal was uh, Vivendi and Canal Plus wanted to bring more uh, movies and content of Francophone Africa. So it's yeah. like a, a win-win. They, they, he, they said it de-risked the business financially. This part I saw interesting. We may not raise money at all again before we exit. I know. Of this trade. And I thought that was interesting thing to say, but yeah. Iroko TV still got to keep content created by Rock in perpetuity with, with the deal. Yeah. So it's, it's not like in the future they would lose yeah. access to the studio. Because and his wife still runs it. Yeah, she still runs it. And I think she still kept a bunch of her equity in the rolled up yeah. venture. So great outcome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like that's great outcome. So uh, another not so great outcome is iRocking where they started building music. And Olympia, mm-hmm. you will not know this, but if you ever downloaded music illegally, as I spent all my university years doing, um, <laughs> they had this um, ad lib at the beginning and end, like something from iRocking.com. It was so annoying. But the goal was to build a, a Savin. We talked about Geo, Geo on the previous episode, like a music search for Geo. And Savin has like those songs that are like local, and Arrowking also had the songs. Like you wanted to hear the new Durella, you get it on. What was, was their, their business model? Was it ads, or you would pay you would pay a subscription fee? How did they make money? I think it was ads. Actually, I'm not sure. Because ads was, in music. You. I think it, they uploaded the content to YouTube as well, so they would have like a blurb before and a blurb after. You can still find okay. some of them. Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't remember a music service. Okay. Story. I couldn't find a music service. Um, and it was somewhat, somewhat similar to what they did. I think the challenge here is the music people were less trusting and more skeptical. So it seemed mm. 
um like he he writes a lot about how they were not um they like to think they're more than they are and people sued him a lot because they thought he was stealing their money and he's like dude there's no money in this thing we're just <laughs> we basically are paying you up front with the belief that we'll make some money on the back end but we can't yeah. because piracy was much more um was also a problem and demand was not centralized because there were all yeah. these other places we get music all these other places we get versus uh movies which were bigger so it limits where you can get it and limits how you can right. get it um right that was, that that was a big problem here. So it almost didn't follow because the music, individual music tracks uh, versus individual video tracks are just very different for cost right. to produce and and things. Um, right. Yeah, because like it's five megabytes average for an MP3 file, but even a VCD file is seven hundred megabytes. So not only is it bigger to download and pirate, the place where you want to view it on YouTube, they would splice and dice it. The song, yeah. they wouldn't necessarily. It's just it's a different market. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's yeah. It was very interesting. I, they did. There was also some internal stuff. It also depends on who you ask. Um, some mm-hmm. employees left. There was like rumors they were starting their own thing. There's a court case. Wow. Political stuff. Um, I can mm-hmm. post a link on the, to the tech about posting. You can read okay, it. Okay. Do we know anything so about the differences in centralization of supply? Like were the music labels, producers, license holders more centralized than the movie ones? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. It, it could be or could not be centralized. Mm-hmm. Um, I would guess mm-hmm. that it would be less centralized, just... Once where it works is you get somebody to fund your first album or your first single. Once you make money, try to make right. own break break free and own the value chain. Right. And the rights and the legal enforcement is a very is especially hazy here. Right, so. right. So, so the way I was thinking about this before is in a way what they did with iRocking and Rock Studios, they're similar. They tried to go across and like, okay, what we did with movies, let's do with music, but that didn't work versus staying with the same movie lane and doing some integration backwards. So it's interesting to see that either way, they're trying to diversify. One was way more successful. Like Rock Studios went from inception to sale in five years with crazy multiples. And now Rocking went from inception to cancellation in the same amount of time with with not a positive outcome. So it's good to try things sometimes. Yeah, I think you you could also, part of the problem was it's an expensive business with an unclear payoff. Like think about content business, they're very hard. It wasn't so much that I would even argue that it may be not so much that it's very different from music, very different from video, but that content business are very expensive and you need somebody that's willing to just burn a lot of money over a long amount of time right. to still be there. And for music, they just weren't ready and it didn't seem, there was much more lawsuits and trouble. I saw when you came in and sued them for 200 million naira, like oh my goodness. just before they closed. And like, okay. we're not doing this fam. Nobody wants to listen to your music. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, just just the, the idea of getting sued in a country like Nigeria just sounds. Oh, hilarious. it happens. It's not, okay. it's not. I think that as I look at all the different companies, it's like they try things. Also, a common trend in tech in general, but in Africa mm-hmm. specifically, is that what you start with and what you end with are going to be completely different. And you have to be willing to for it to be completely opposite. I think one additional interesting thing about iRocking is sometimes in businesses when they're not successful, someone else comes and does it later, and then you're like, oh, it's a timing thing. But based on the way that market has evolved, it seems like most people are just going to continue legal downloads or Spotify or YouTube. It still doesn't seem like the idea would work that well today, like centralized music with a platform because someone else is already going to do it. It wouldn't be a Nigerian solution, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think a lot of people are doing something here. I actually think there's a lot here. We could probably do an episode on music, the music industry, because of we talk about Boomplay from Transition. They say they have 62 million subscribers. Right. I don't know. It seems like a big number, but right. it's MTN and then right. doing different business models. The right. truth is the content and how people want to consume it, Spotify does not work for that. And mm-hmm. so there's a there's a market demand and there's a supply. 
And right. the stuff that's in the middle doesn't work quite well. Like Boomplay is probably the closest. Right. Um, but I'm not convinced that like the Spotify, YouTube music type model works well yeah. in Nigeria because of the cost of data and smartphone penetration. Yeah. Problem is all the examples we give, they're dependent on another core business. They're not actually sustainable. Like Boomplay is dependent on Transient, MTN. Is, is, they're not independent businesses, which basically tells me that they're probably not profit generating or growth. But okay, we'll come back to music later. So coming back to Iroko TV. There's been a reason why I've been using the word desktop till now. So where are we in the story? We're around 2015, 2016, and Iroko did a massive pivot to focus on their mobile app platform. So they shut down IrokoTV.com for African users only. They kept it for their diaspora, and they focused primarily on an Android app. And they said the reason for, for, for this was based on the level of progress and impact of 3G, it made more sense for people to use an Android app and specifically to use an Android app with an offline download model versus a streaming model. So that was 2015. Also, 2015, they stopped all paid marketing and mm. only relied on organic marketing, which I thought was fascinating, which is probably a sign that either A, their brand became self-sustaining enough where they felt like the payoffs weren't worth it, or B, the paid marketing costs, they just wanted to have uh, better unit economics and it just didn't make sense for them to focus on, on, on marketing. Um, and then in 2017, they started to expand more into other African countries with operations. So they expanded into Kenya uh, and Ghana. Any thoughts on the mobile focus? Around this time, a lot of Nigerian companies were doing this. I remember Conga also tried something um, to focus only on mobile. It's, it's yeah, a bit mobile of mobile and Android. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I, I understand it. Um, one thing I thought was very interesting about this is if you live in these markets and you have a high willingness to pay, you may be irritated by being forced and bucketed with the rest of the markets. Like the 1% of Nigerians who have super fast internet, they would feel a bit irritated that the site is put down for them because yeah. their IP says they're in Nigeria. I'm but- sure J- Justin would say, I don't know, I don't, you know, go download Netflix from. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure that's exactly what he would say. Go fly a kite. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next phase, the next phase of growth is what I'm calling a mobile app subscription business, which basically now everything is coming to four. They're now Android only, primarily subscription and focus less on ads and focus less on YouTube, which is basically the business model they've had till today. So that's the evolution of business models for Iroko yeah. over the past couple of years. Very fascinating. Yeah, so I, I did So I did look at the pricing, which is also very interesting. I think one of the things that I've, to be fair, good investors, um, but also the market is that they've sort of learned the painful way what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like they don't mm-hmm. have a free trial. Like you take your data, the sign-up process is very unique. You take your data and they make you pay, which again, will never happen. You got to give me something. It's what, if you do product in the West is what you hear. You got to give the user something and it doesn't quite work for them. Their costs and the content costs shoot up to the roof if they do something like that. Right. Uh, I think it's 25. They, they, they price very, um, very interesting, interestingly as well. $25 per year if you're in the US or if you're in Nigeria or in the US on a Nigeria VPN, uh, it's yeah, 3,000 3, per year as well. But yeah. again, second thing that they do, no monthly plans, charge annually as well. Nice. If you use a VPN, don't email us. Email someone else. Just pay. Don't, <laughs> don't be like that. By the way, no. even for American audiences, that's quite low. You said $25 per year, not per yeah. month. So it's per like two, two, $2 per month. Pretty- yeah. I, I guess you have to make an evaluation on, on the content, what's important. And, and this, it really talks about content businesses and what's mm-hmm. important is they have a very similar model to like, you get the content upfront and then you get people to, to stay. Does the content have to be the best content? No. I think it's kind of a misnomer. If you watch TV in, in the West, it's like HBO has everything good, everything mm-hmm. great. HBO has 30 shows and 25 of them are like must watch. Right. Uh, but Netflix has everything. 
So there are different models and different ways to win in content. And so I don't even think the content has to be good, but it has to be there. Because wow. the quality, when I talked about the quality pieces, it's irrelevant. It's almost like, is it what people want? Even wow. if it's good or bad. Because what people watch and what people say they watch are completely different. That's why Adam right. Sandler is rich, okay? <laughs> okay? Adam Sandler makes shitty movies from the jump. Yeah. But people watch them a lot. And I think yeah. that's, 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 that's TV, uh, but that's at least pay TV or, or streaming video on demand in general. I, I love I love thinking about the evolution of their business model over time. It just goes to show part of trying to be successful in business is not anchoring too much on your initial idea. It's more about being nimble. Like, okay, let's go back to the top. They started in 2010, literally selling VCDs from Nigeria. Immediately, yeah. they started buying content, putting them on YouTube to get ad revenue. Mm-hmm. Later on, they turned off desktop, made their own website. After then, they turned down their own website, made their own app, focused on Android, because Android has 90, 99% market share. And after that, they started subscriptions, and they switched from a freemium model to mostly only subscriptions later on. It's just, it's fascinating to see, and they keep on trying to tweak things around the edges. We didn't even talk about the specific pricing over time. Just goes through, you need to keep on trying. And by the way, throughout all this, um, we've spoken about their business model to date. We should also talk a little bit about their ownership stake. So if you remember Bastion from the start, the last ownership stake I saw as of 2019 November is Jason owns 16.85 percent. One six. And Bas- yeah, one six. And then Bastion owns 9.74 percent. And then obviously the the biggest shareholder is um, Tiger, because Tiger invested right from the start and took like a massive stake. So from the institutional investors perspective, they only have four major investors, which I was surprised. It's Canal Plus. Uh, Kinevik, Tiger Global, and then Rise Capital. I thought they would have a huge bunch of institutional VCs, but yeah. it's actually a very small list, and those guys keep on funding them. Yeah, should we should we also talk about like I feel like where they are today? So in August of yes. 2020, yes. or in May 2020, there was a layoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they followed some of their staff and laid some off. Yes, they, let's talk about that. Yeah, the COVID stuff didn't quite help help them at all. Yeah. The way it helped a lot of people for many different reasons. Yeah, he has an yeah. interesting blog post uh, about it. But I, I thought that part was uh, was interesting. In that it, it is. Let's definitely talk about it. So 2020, April, May, they furloughed about 28% of their staff and they had pay cuts for 16% of their staff and they fired 2% of their staff. Uh, so not good. And the primary reasons you seem to be, what Bank always said, COVID had a very negative impact on them, which is weird because COVID had a positive impact on similar businesses. Um, I just guess their core audience reacted differently than no, the audience no, for their competitors. Like Nigeria <laughs> devaluation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think I guess for a company that streams, you have dollar bills. I think you had a sense of of saying, uh, like, look, if you're paying for AWS, our costs are going to shoot up um, every time Nigeria devalues, and that uncertainty means that our costs are shooting up right. in a, an unhealthy way, even though our right. revenues are staying constant right. for our Nigerian but, customers. But, but the devaluation happened like a year and a half before, so that's only part of the cause, right? Because this is 2020 no. April. The primary devaluation happened in 2018. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think it's it's more like a sequence of events where exactly is exactly. happening. People are losing their jobs. Obviously, the economy yes. is contracting, and what Nigerian people pay is becoming cheaper and cheaper. Right. And what their costs are becoming, their revenues is shrinking. Their costs are increasing. Yeah. You got to make up the difference somehow. That was a bit of a bit of a bit of a. a Got punch that led to them shifting focus to customers in North America yes. and Europe as well. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And then exactly 2020 August, a lot of those furloughs basically became permanent layoffs and they shifted to more European customers and North American customers, basically diaspora, which they said accounted for 80% of their revenues. Um, 
but obviously a smaller proportion of overall consumers. So not the best, um, but understandable considering the, the circumstances. Jason had two great blog posts just like outlining all the details, and I really applaud the transparency. It's a little bit sad, the outcome, um, but I guess sometimes you have to uh, shrink and then grow back again. Um, you know, he said he said many times that the opportunity for his business, the big growth is in Africa. But I think time and time again, uh, it, it appears it's, you know, the numbers don't back that up yes. yet. Yes. And time and time again, he's had to shift his business to to change that focus time and time again. Yes. It's a very interesting. Exactly. At what point do you say? I know. I know. I, I mean, luckily for him he still has the optionality to switch focus because basically they have two core audiences, Africans living in Africa and African diaspora living abroad. At least they have that optionality. Other companies such as Jumia, they don't have that optionality. They just have to wait it out. So the actual quote from Jason's blog, again, please go subscribe. It's awesome. He said, we still believe in Nigeria. We believe in Ghana. We believe in Africa. But it's a strange thing to realize that even after almost nine years with the Roku TV, five exclusive years focused on Africa, we may still be too early for Africa. That in itself says so much about the current internet opportunity in Africa. Many models have attempted to crack the consumer economy in Africa. Classifieds don't work. Lead gen doesn't work. E-commerce doesn't work. Free doesn't work. And if we only had the African market, like so many of before us who failed, then this post would be called RIP Roku TV. So at least they have the optionality to switch. But yeah, pretty vicious quote. But brutally honest too. Yeah, he's a very, very honest guy. So it's weird because, um, so for the audience who hasn't listened to some of our earlier episode, episodes, from around 2010 to 2014, there, was a, there were a lot of stories about the African economy, African growth, tech, like Africa rising, all these things. But as you can see, that narrative has gone up and down and up and down. And I guess now it's in a little bit of a down cycle. So we'll see whether it comes back up. But it's been a little bit unfortunate. Oh, it'll, come back. It's, it'll come back up. Debt taxes and cycles and economic cycles. Yeah. Yeah, it's only a matter of time before. Yeah, and the older people have seen that story before. If you hang out with more older people, they they basically tell you like, "Yeah, we've been through this, right? Uh, the opportunity and the size of it, and thinking it was just something big." But yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an interesting play to figure out, like, for developing markets, when does it make sense to yeah. engage, either as an operator or an investor? Yeah. Uh, to make that persistence even more remarkable, is you have to think through. The competition and all the people that have come to this space mm-hmm. and have died, scaled down, scaled down, mm-hmm. disappeared. People, yeah. people actually miss that. Like Hiroko seems to be like probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest. Um, yes. But then other people have come very well funded, like iFlix. Um, mm-hmm. uh, was backed by Sky. Was trying to yeah. grow. I was like, nope, not doing this. Yeah. The is back in Showmax. You know, yeah. neither here nor there. No, MTN no, no. launched something. Don't forget MTN that also something. got shut down. Vu. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's crazy. There's there's just so much, and even on the upper end of the market, basically, um, Olympus friends, Olympus wealthy friends in Lagos, um, they rather, <laughs> rather have DSTV um, and watch it there as a as a part of a bouquet because that's a competition. So right. and DSTV has GoTV going after those same low income customers. They're going after that content. So yes. there's just a lot of different. Um, the they're not just fighting against the market. He says they're yeah. fighting against the market. I think they're fighting against other people because once they figure it out, they are very well-funded competitors that can come in. But I guess if they haven't done it yet, what's to say they'll be able to do it in the future? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's such a, it's such a weird market because like Iroko, they've tried so many, te- so many things. I guess, Bankley, should we talk about the, the kiosks and the telemarketing? Yeah. Like they've tried, it's basically what we said in Jumia. They've tried 
everything on yeah. and on and on yeah. and on. So they had kiosks for the movies. Yes. They had telemarketing. Yes. They have salespeople to go sign up subscribers. I know. I know. Uh, like that. Like that's that would be it would be like if Netflix had a bunch of people to to stop people <laughs> and like sign up for Netflix. <laughs> Look, it's a different market, and the models yeah. the models can work because it's, yes, uh, you're basically sub, 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 substituting the tech for labor. Right, um, and labor is cheap. You know, but the leverage point hasn't happened yet. He said he's trying to get to a million subscribers before he exits. Um, you know, good on him. If he does exit, definitely do more investments, and which is what the ecosystem needs. Right. Um, as a side yeah. note for investment, by the way, the recent like um, Paystack exit has spurred a lot of a lot more. I don't know if you've seen this in like people talking about investments or investing or angel investing more. Yeah. Um, because it's like, ooh, exit. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about the competitive landscape and some of the big yeah. players. So there are a lot, like Bankley spoke about, and the th weird thing about video viewing is there are a lot of ways to cut it. So for example, you can divide the video market into who creates the contents. So that's UGC versus PGC, user-generated content, professionally-generated content. That's one way to divide the market. Another way to divide the market is the way video is watched. Is it linear video or is it video on demand? The difference being linear video is you watch it continuously and you can't really pick what you want to show. Video on demand, you can select yeah. a specific thing you want to watch. That's one way. Another way to cut it is even within VOD, you can have subscription video on demand. You can have transaction. Basically, let me not bore the audience. There are a lot of different ways to cut it. The summary is a lot of players have come and gone. Um, Amazon Prime Instant Video Focus on Africa came in 2016. Netflix entered Africa end of 2015, 2016. iFlix launched. I think the biggest thing for all these players is the market competition is really about piracy and poverty. Like a lot of Nigerians, just a lot of Africans don't have money to pay for some of these things. So in a way, the, the competitors are important, but it's sort of like what we said on the Jumia episode. Jumia had 1% of the addressable market, like six, they had 6 million paying users out of 800 million people. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of these players are competing, but I'm not even going to talk about the competitive strategy differentiation because... The consumers have shown that low income and poverty is the primary thing. And figuring out a way to solve that problem is much more important than figuring out what to do against your competitors. So I think that's just the crux of the competitive space. Yeah, you, you know what's interesting? I think about this is like, oh, internet TV penetration is low, pay TV penetration is low, mobile penetration is low. And it's like, yeah, is, is TV the right um, access to be looking at this or the right lens to be looking at this through? Is it entertainment Boom. as a whole? Like mm -hmm. if Netflix says their biggest competition is Fortnite because people are playing video games instead of watching Netflix and yeah. people play mobile games instead of that. Like what are people doing instead of watching a Roku TV or pay TV today? It's better. A very interesting question. Future episode. Yeah. So sports <laughs> gaming is, yeah, exactly. So you're watching the content that you're betting on. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's probably where, where, where I think that this, where you talk about addressable market, it's back that thought where you're saying, okay, you know, Jumia has 1% addressable market, but they're defining the market wrong. And they mm -hmm. define their competition wrong, mm -hmm. and therefore uh, they define the opportunity wrong, and define yeah. their runway wrong. And I think that right. for Iroko, obviously, no idea how he defines it, but he defines it in many different ways. Right. But it's very interesting because I I don't know that like, what do I do instead of watching a movie? And I'm definitely not a representative customer. That's an interesting question, and the answer is going to be different for different people based on right. data. And I think that's where yeah. the competition comes comes in. Yeah, and that's basically the, the crux of it. Because what strikes me is interesting about the um, entertainment industry and the video viewing market is, is sort of what I said about the health tech episode. In a way, how do you design a business model where people have shown they're unwilling to pay? Like, look how cheap Roku TV is, and still they're having challenges focusing on African consumers. So it, it's because it's not really cheap. I think it's cheap. Clearly, people aren't buying it. So it's my misconception of people's no, willingness to pay. But so it, it, also like the added cost of data. Right. Yes. It's data. Um, 
so so it's basically like what business model can you come up with that encourages people to pay or maybe they don't have to pay they're still successful. Can you do ads? Well, they tried ads and they switched away from ads because the ads revenue isn't enough to cover your content costs. So you just basically have to think about what else can I do? Or you just completely host. Are there or, other partners you can partner with? Is there some other revenue source? Let's define problem differently. If you mm-hmm. go up uh, a few levels and say it's a, it, business is a cash flow problem, right? So maybe it's a lot of cash at the beginning that you bleed. So the curve mm-hmm. goes down and it goes very deep. And then it goes up in like a 10 years. And if you can sell investors that story, that's a very hard story to sell investors. Like yeah. even people who do that are successful, say Netflix, they're not telling investors that story, right? Which right. is, hey, we're going to lose a lot of money for 10, 15 years. And if there's, you know, maybe at the end of 10, 15 years, we make a lot of money as the ecosystem grows, we'll be first in line. Yeah, I'm not investing in that business. That business sounds like a high risk business. No way. So, 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 I mean, like, is that, would investors find that attractive? I'm definitely going to lose money in the beginning and maybe I'll get money later on. I, I, I don't think so. It, I, it depends I, on the investor's willingness to risk. I, I can think Spotify, Netflix, obviously you don't tell that story. I don't think that's how you tell that story. Uh, yeah. I think you tell, you tell the story as investing in growth. Um, yeah. So, so but, I, but that's the sort of the mindset change where if you're trying to build a traditional business here using traditional business and traditional right. business logic, it doesn't work because you are going to lose a lot of money and you have to have an appetite to lose more. That's not easy. So we, we can flip that on, on its head. Is your actual customer the African consumer living in Africa? Because most of your problems are solved because then your content costs can be low if you actually focus more on people who have higher willingness to pay, which is the diaspora. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, it can be your customer in Africa, but you have to be willing to lose a lot of money at first to get to... Because like, I, I imagine there's a unit... If you think about the fact, okay, content. So content has fixed costs. So they pay a fixed price, all right? I imagine they pay a fixed price. And they have to acquire customers, amortize the payment of those customers over a long enough period to pay for the content. So right. there's a scale point where the unit economics makes sense if you draw the figure, right? So, but you yeah. have to spend a lot of money in that acquisition and in that retention uh, you have to, you have to, to justify long it. Enough to get it. Yeah, survive long enough to do that. So you need a lot of capital to to reach escape velocity. So which is my point right. about like, yeah, who's who has a stomach for it? Jason clearly does, but like not many people have a stomach for it. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard business. My hat's off to Jason. I think based on the way you structure, you could be successful. I mean, I think Iroko TV has the most amount of money. They've raised the most amount of money. So to your t- talk about content costs, if it's going to be a spend money as soon as you get it play, they may be the ones to win it. But it's a it's it's not a market that I would call a typical tech market. It's a high fixed cost business initially. And the, the likelihood of getting the revenue later on doesn't scale the way I would think about it. And the other pieces I also want to highlight, it's not unique to Nigeria. Like Nigeria has its own unique levels but, but of difficulty on top of it. This is the same thing with the, the, the data center business, right? You people, build a bunch of like data centers and then you get yeah. the money later on when you charge. It's, it's a standard thing. It's just the reason why this is harder. The reason why it's unique is because the willingness to pay is extra low in this market, like extra, extra, yeah. extra, extra low. But the content yeah. costs, I'm not sure if they're also that low. The other, the other content um, businesses in the world that people even think are successful content businesses. Like Spotify. Are subsidized, subsidized by large companies. Or there's a strong beer thesis on each of them. So people, Spotify and Netflix, they're people who routinely think that that's a Ponzi scam. <laughs> they're spending a lot of money they don't have for good yeah. reason, right? If you look at the numbers, it doesn't add up. And yeah. and it's like, is there something there or not? Do you economics yeah. just, are you bound to suck and keep kicking the can down the road? I think we're ready for uh, overarching thoughts and outlook. We've, we've already got into it. Overall, I think it's really about content and the business of content. Thought about, 
a flip side of thinking through like businesses and business ideas is not so much like is this credible or what does this have to be what what has to be true for this to be credible versus like if it's if this entrepreneur is right how big could this be like how big is the opportunity here if everything aligns and i think the opportunity is is actually pretty massive people want entertainment it's one of those things like like communication right that that sort of this persistent need that we've always found ways to entertain ourselves from the beginning of time People want to find ways to do that within their current um, regular life. So I, I am bullish about that. The second piece is this idea of content and the business of content. Iroko's challenges are reflective of the challenges of content businesses as a whole, at least in part, right? Um, in that, um, if you look at your companies, even in, in those markets in the US, it's definitely a cost arbitrage that will close eventually. It's like, is Iroko better at meeting European customers and Netflix in Europe? Right, that's a that's an open question. You have to you have to believe that Iroko is better at reaching Nigerians in 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 New York than Netflix mm. is. And mm-hmm. So that that's a problem. So if it's only the content arbit- content arbitrage in Nigeria versus, versus the the West that is the differentiator, then that's not that impressive. It can be closed. Okay. If it's been vertically integrated, that like that that's definitely an edge. And then it's like, does are we going from content quality to volume? And does it matter if you have again the kind of money that these competitors and focus are coming to these markets with? Like those, those are the kind of open, open questions I have. Okay. So where, where are you leaning? Seems uh, you're sitting on the fence. I am, I am probably on the fence. Like I, the other, the other piece on the, on my, um, one positive for me is that I don't think that the content, like the content matters. I don't think it matters as much as many people think it does. Like people want to have something. Okay. Um, the, 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 your goal is subscription and renewal of, uh, if you if I think about Netflix is their goal is to get people to subscribe and renew and yeah. content helps them do that the yeah. content that helps them do that is necessarily the most popular content like spending 200 whatever Netflix spends on a, or people spend on a massive movie as opposed to spend amount on marketing for acquisition and retention they're agnostic either way right because mm-hmm. it's just one piece of content for one hour right so yeah. I'm less concerned about the content the ability to get that content the exclusivity or the Getting the newest, fanciest Nigerian movie or whatever is, it's a red herring. That's not mm-hmm. how they get paid. They get paid. They don't get paid in awards. They don't get paid in any of that. He said that himself. So mm-hmm. I think I, I, I'm sort of getting, getting close to that. A couple of other like just random thoughts. So I can just, let's just explain how I'm feeling about this. One is like, is financing is how long, how, how long can they play this game? This is, ah, right, right. this is a, this is a, you know, this is war. It's not it's basically just um, two people, uh, the market and, and the Roku TV just punching each other in the gut and seeing who wins. And, you know, <laughs> and the market can stay rational and most people can stay solvent, right? So that becomes like a big problem. However, from layoffs and from like, uh, from layoffs and the fact that they've sold, had some exits, Spark mm-hmm. and the Roku is like, well, they do have some capital and they're, right. they're clearly digging in for the long term. Like they had to stay, like they'll wait it out and they will squeeze and, they have a lot of margin to wait it out. So I wouldn't bet against them for that reason. In that, like, right. They can wait it out and there's emotion, there's ego involved. Mm. Like, they can definitely wait it out. So that mm. leads me towards optimistic. Finally, okay. oh. finally, finally. Oof. Things that I think I that matter. I thought you had finished, apparently I not. know, I know. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Shush. Finally, things that I think that matter less is the technology. So um, it's very tempting to get super tech and I haven't seen that from them, but I, just something to flag for African businesses is that the core problem you're solving um, the tech is not so much a differentiator versus the distribution is sort of a bigger oh, of problem, course. a bigger bottleneck. Of course. The tech is not so much the bottleneck in the experience in this case. Of course. Um, and, and in fairness is, you know, it's it's not going to, 
unless the tech can help you solve distribution, like through penet- internet penetration or whatever it is, or through compression or things like that, that could be interesting. Right. But I don't know what 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 liver is. The last point okay. is, dude. Like this. Ah, another last point. Why are you a hater, man? <laughs> okay, cool. This this entrepreneur backs himself, which I think is important. Like, um, there's a, there's a lot of criticism on the internet. Uh, I think a lot of confusion is people mistake confidence for certainty. Like, right. it's the future people are talking about. People are always making predictions about the future. And if you're confident about how it will turn out, is you're you're backing yourself, and people don't really know, and they can be wrong about it. And that's okay. Mm. Uh, but I do appreciate him backing himself. So yeah, that's my overall thoughts on outlook. Wow. Okay. My uh, my raw thoughts and outlook. I think so. How, how do I feel about the story? First of all, I, I think it's a great story. It, it's a it's like a combination of I, I put here bravery and experimentation. It's I don't know if in 2010 how many people would have done what Jason did. Like I, it, it's very easy now in hindsight just to tell the story as a narrative, but it's actually very very. It shows a lot of bravery and self belief. Like he flew over and started living in his uncle's bedroom to buy content creators from the markets to put on YouTube abroad. Like it's just, it's just a lot, um, especially for someone who had spent most of his life in England. So a lot of respect for, for that. It's one of those things where in hindsight, it sounds sensible, but at the time I'm sure he must've been scared shitless. Um, so this, another part of the story is just the experimentation. So what did they try? They tried an Android app focus. They tried an incubator slash accelerator. They tried differentiated pricing for diaspora versus African. They tried kiosk. They tried tele, I, they tried so many different things. And I think regardless of which ones were successful or not, I don't care. Just the fact that they're willing to adjust and adapt to whatever they think the market needs. It just shows like the DNA of yeah. the company is something that's made for, for this market. Um, so what, what do I think about the future? I think from a consumer perspective, there's always going to be a lot of options. So I'm very happy yeah. for consumers. Netflix, um, Amazon, um, iFlix, Iroko, on and on. Yeah. A lot of options. I don't think those guys can kill can kill his business. I just oh, think they're no. very different. So oh, I agree with him. He says that I agree with him as well. Yeah, 100% agree with him. No, no problem whatsoever. Um, I think they have a massive brand. They have a deep understanding of the local market. They've been there for 10 and a half years at this point. So here, here's what I think about the bull case. So the bull case for me is primarily about like, Survival, like survive long enough to weather the COVID impact, keep faith in your existing investors and continue to tell them the story to get funding, figure out a way to balance the revenues from the diaspora who give you more margins and the customer growth coming from Africans. Um, I think for most of the history, they were focused on Africa. I think after the 2019 layoffs, they're now focused on diaspora. So I think that balance and threading that needle is key to, to the bull case. And then, yeah, hopefully they survive long enough to ride the internet costs down, um, higher standard of living, more willingness to pay. They're able to increase their margins and focus over time. And then, yeah, they eventually IPO or sell. Jason has said he strongly prefers an IPO. So that's probably more likely than a sale. So I think that that's the bull case. Survival, balancing revenues from different sources, and just riding the whole internet adoption wave and willingness to pay of customers um, to IPO. The I'm bear optimi- case- I'm actually is- more optimistic. Sorry, wait, is that- wait, Done, that was sorry. the bull case. That was okay, the bull case. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm, the, I'm slightly more optimistic than that. I would have a like that's a bull case. Like this, yeah. They could new business models, um, tailwinds of internet penetration could like yeah change it pricing. Yeah, bear case is 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 not as good. So yeah, survival becomes way harder as content costs escalate. The COVID impact 
becomes way more protected and continues for years and years. The initial investors, like I said, there are only four of them. They start to lose belief. Then it becomes harder to get funding. So if the main investors who have insider information don't believe, it's harder to get new investors. So basically a downward spiral. You can add in a few more things to the mix in the bear case. Regulatory overhead and government intervention. We didn't talk about the fact government had some random video tax a few months ago. They had to resign. Um, and then, yeah, so the bear case is just a downward spiral. And then, yeah, the, the rest is history. So there are two different things. I lean more on the bull case. I'm just, I'm a, I think their track record based on all the nasty things mm. that have happened in Nigeria and surviving with the recession in 2016, with the devaluation in 2018 with COVID knowledge of the local market and the fact that investors have stuck with them for most of this time, I think it leans more towards there. I just, something in the back of my mind just makes me think the business opportunity may not be as big as other potential internet businesses. Um, there's something about the way the business is structured and the amount of time it's going to take for customers to be willing to pay, even if you come up with business models, makes me um, a bit hesitant about, yeah, I'm skeptical yeah. about the overall sp- opportunity size. I think they can do it. I just think when they do it, the the the, the the size of the business and the market cap will be lower than a lot of people think. Um, because it's hard to think about a business model innovation or waiting for Nigerians or Africans to be willing to pay a price that makes sense based on how much they've already invested. So um, I'm on the I'm on the bull case, but um, the business is, is going to be hard and I think not as big as some other potentially larger internet businesses. But I like Interesting. it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm more like, I'm more bull because I, I, I'm probably taking survival as like, okay, they have capital individually yes, and as a company. Uh, and they just have to be at that party when the music comes on. Yeah. And like that's, which is a strange kind of bookcase, which is like, you know, things will get better, you know, right. don't you worry, child. Right. You know, everyone yeah. has a plan for you, just stay in the game. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's be this would be one of those things where in three years we'll come back and listen to this and be like, yeah, yeah. they stayed in the game. Yeah. The, 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 the problem with staying in the game is, so they stay for three years, they get back on the growth curve for three years. They exit for three years. So that's nine years. So that's like 2029. 20, so that's 19 years. The IRR calculation for so many years of existence, the market cap needs to be massive at that point because you have to back calculate each year to see what your returns are. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm optimistic yeah. with you. It's just like, it's going to be so hard to, to make this a super big business because of the, the waiting game they have to play. Um, now, but I'm optimistic. Now, now would they visit the look IRR role? They spend cash. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, on that note... <laughs> On that note, uh, let's talk about recommendations and small wins. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Okay. So two <laughs> recommendations. I, I, I love this. So this recommendation I made a few months ago, again, earnings season, because I listened to all the different earnings calls. Earnings calls by Borsa Finance. It's an app that you can use to listen to earnings calls. Earnings have been very, very fascinating this time. Most notably, SoftBank's earnings. So I listened to a bunch of them. Most of them were just drab, but the SoftBank one is, oh, Masayoshi-san. So highly, re- highly recommended the app. It's, there's a free version. You don't even have to pay. And then a second recommendation is a book, Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy. It's one of my favorite books of all time. What? I love, I love this book so much. I was reading another book. I'm not going to say the name of the book. Halfway through, I'm like, I need to put down this shit and just go back to Maximum Achievement. I read it like five years ago. I started reading again. It's so good. So two recommendations. I'll add them to the, the show notes. It's like a, it's like a personal development book that's like timeless. Brilliance. Uh, so I'll add them to the show notes. Interesting. I have, I have two recommendations. One is a book. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is this book called Shape Up. So uh, mm-hmm. when I start on something, I uh, I go all the way down. So the, <laughs> the guys who, are, who 
Basecamp. The guys wrote Basecamp, wrote Hey App, wrote a book about product management called Shape Up. You're obsessed so with these guys. You're using their their app. You're you're, you're just like. <sighs> I'm I'm looking for one percent improvements. If I get one percent better every day, that's the plan. Anyways, so Shape Up is about uh, building and shipping software and the right way to ship software. They are, it's very interesting the methods work for small companies. A couple of things that highlight is that they, there's a lot of pre-thinking before any actual work is done. The second mm-hmm. controversial thing in big tech companies is they work in six-week cycles. So none of the agile, typical agile, you find two weeks or sprints or whatever. Six weeks and you have to ship something tangible in those six weeks and nothing gets extended beyond those six weeks. Like like almost never do you extend past the six weeks that are currently like booked for the project, which I think is very like, huh. That's bold. Uh, again, <laughs> as a product manager, we still misses deadlines. Risky, risky, risky. But it's it's a very interesting approach. Like if you work in this space and you care about shipping software, I thought it was an interesting book. Mm-hmm. Second recommendation is that an article by this guy, who was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, if you're into like American sports and Philly sports, the chant, the fans chant, trust the process. It's kind of like a thing, and mm-hmm. it was a long term cycle where he said, "I'm working on a long term plan to get the team to where it needs to be." And it was very painful, but the fans came along. But he wrote a note when he had to leave, essentially about long-term thinking and going against the grain. Um, it's a very, he reads well, he writes very well. I'll link to it as well in the show notes. So wait, what, what's the outcome of that? So the management and leaders did not give him enough time to implement his plan? They did, or yeah, they waited they, and it still didn't work out? No, they waited and then mm-hmm. they got impatient towards the end. Let's put it this way. Uh, like, it's like almost, we have the pieces in place and like, we just need to do. It's like, oh man, it should have happened already. Like you already had the pieces in place last year. Uh, and it's fine. Teams go in a different direction, but even to get to this place was something that people didn't think it could happen because oh. a lot of other teams have been terrible for way longer. So they were terrible right. and it was like, this is the plan. Like it's mm. going to take a while. We're going to be terrible for two or three more years because that's just how it works. But we're going right. to invest in the interim to make sure that things work out. And he was, his message was consistent even when he was down, even when people were against him. And then all of a sudden they're in contention now where the reason why he got fired is sort of this like, we should be doing more. Like, we are, like, so good now. And it's like, yeah, hmm. but but I thought it was a very interesting um, huh. thought I think I'll, I'll read that. Okay, an article. Okay, we'll yeah. add it to the show notes. I will. Uh, small wins. Okay, small wins. Yes, my experiment has been standing during all my meetings. It's going very well, and I'm very happy with that. So I'm actually, I'm very comfortable with it now. And I I like the fact that it makes me feel more active, even though it's, it's a minor adjustment from sitting versus standing. So that's a small win that's been happening over the yeah. past couple of weeks. Nice. My small win is I've, I've added morning walks to my evening walks. The evening walks, oh, because of work, for some reason, don't necessarily, and in Seattle weather, don't get uh, done a lot. But in the morning, even if it's raining, I'll just take a walk just by myself, no music. Because um, it's cold right about now, but it's so clear-headed. I come back to my desk and I'm just ready for the day, ready to ready to get into it. Nice. Okay. And then we wrap uh, open questions. My open question, very straightforward. What lessons can all of us learn from uh, Jason's approach to running and managing Iroko TV? I'm curious to hear uh, what people think in terms of leadership lessons. So my question is more like, what is the future of streaming video on demand and industry in Nigeria? And how is it different from what we have in the West? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it meaningfully different in a way that changes what we should be doing? Um, mm. Because I, I feel like what has been happening is we're taking some version of the same kind of models where you're paying for the content, either through a subscription or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like it's either that or ads, or should somebody else be paying? Um, yeah. Or does it not work at all? Or yeah. does it, should it only be paid TV? I'm very curious about, like, is this, a, is this a use case? Like, the problem that we're trying to solve is people finding things to do. Right. Is SVOD this hammer that we're just 
throwing out a problem where it's like DOA people yeah. don't want to consume it in that form. Uh, or thoughts about that? Because a lot of money has been burnt down this SVOD path. Not right. a lot more money has been made, uh, yeah. if at all. I'm very curious, is it like a fool's errand? Or is it just like one of those things where people yeah. want it, but somebody has to pay? In the US, yeah. it's VCs and, and, and investors in the stock market. In Nigeria, we just haven't found those people to be that interested. So cool. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, topics you'd like to hear, or just want to say hello, please email info at afferability.com. Thanks.